Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, a Cassus Belly project. So, every once in a while, I get an email from a listener asking if there are any ways to contribute to the show to help keep it going. And until now, I've always had to answer that no, there isn't. Well, that's going to change today. Now there is. I've decided to launch a Patreon page. You can find it by visiting patreon.com slash Podcasts. For those of you who aren't aware, Patreon is a site that allows you to become a patron of a particular media producer, artist, or some other creative endeavor. It works sort of like a pledge drive, where you can choose to contribute a certain amount per month. Right now, I've decided on a three-tiered system of $3, $6, and $25 levels, each with different little benefits. At the $3 a month member level, you'll have access to polls where I ask members of the show how they want it to proceed. Sometimes I need to make editorial decisions, and it would be nice to have input from listeners when making those decisions. At the $6 patron level, you'll have access to polls as well as some sort of behind-the-scenes content. Essentially, a view of how I create the show and some of the audio I delete. Typically, expletive-driven rants over tongue-twister sentences. Lastly, at the $25 VIP patron level, I'll square off against you in Axis and Allies Online on Steam and announce the winner on the show. Hopefully that's worth the price tag. So if any of you are interested in supporting the show in that way, go ahead over to patreon.com slash Podcasts. And, as always, don't hesitate to contact me at cassisbellyguy at gmail.com with comments, corrections, or questions, or anything like that. Also, none of these uh, price points or, or benefits are, are set in stone, so uh, I might have some polls out there that just ask what the listeners think would be good benefits to have. Um, right now, they're set at a pretty low level, I think. I don't want to um, deter anyone from uh, joining the Patreon page, but um, hopefully that's an incentive, and uh, for those of you who have been wanting to contribute, this is a way for you to do that. So on to the actual show. Last episode, I mentioned that I would be beginning the Aleutian Islands campaign. Well, that was a lie. Though the Japanese captured the islands in mid-1942, the Americans would not actually repel them until early 1943. So instead, we'll be heading over to the Battle of Guadalcanal, the first real counteroffensive against the Japanese in the Solomon Islands. So let's get started with episode 26, The Eagle Strikes Back. Ah, have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? Six months of Japanese freedom of maneuver in the Pacific came crashing, or perhaps I should say sinking, to an end on June 4, 1942, at the Battle of Midway. The Japanese had blitzed across the Pacific beginning December 7th, the year before, and had occupied lands ranging from Burma in the west to Wake Island in the east, and from Guadalcanal in the south to Atu and Kiska in the Aleutian Islands in the north, distances of 4,500 and 4,200 miles respectively. 
the Japanese Empire was truly vast. Having conquered such a sprawling empire, they now had to govern it, a task no less difficult than acquiring it in the first place. They not only had to provide civil administration, but also get the economies and people working again, especially since the whole point of this conquest was to secure natural resources for the Japanese economy. By 1942, the Japanese had been at the colonial administration game for the better part of a decade through their holdings in Korea, Manchuria, and coastal China. Now they just needed to apply their lessons learned to the rest of their empire. The Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere was their theoretical vehicle for imperial management. Though a pretty self-congratulatory imperial theory, the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere was at least an earnest attempt at an alternative to Western domination in Asia. The Japanese saw themselves as the Asian liberators, who could bring all the Asian races to greatness. Of course, the Japanese' own ideas of racial superiority would undermine this in almost every way. There were some occupied populations who did buy into it nonetheless. Many occupied areas were given varying degrees of self-determination. Obviously, Thailand remained independent in name, though it was essentially a puppet state, as was French Indochina, which remained a French overseas possession in name for most of the war. Manchuria, also nominally independent, had its own puppet government, which served to extract resources on behalf of the government in Tokyo, though the Manchu population enjoyed no particular benefits under Japanese authority. Two populations which fully embraced the Japanese mission were Indians and Burmese seeking independence from Britain, perhaps because neither ever fell under full Japanese occupation. Both populations had sizable liberation armies fighting under Japanese banners. In parts of Malaya, and the former Dutch East Indies, Muslim populations recorded and somewhat brought into the fold of Japanese colonial administration. One population which totally rejected the Japanese mission, however, were the Filipinos. Unlike many other Asian colonial nations, they had a fairly westernized culture, which had been mixing with the Spanish Catholicism and more recently American culture for hundreds of years. They detested Japanese colonials and fought a rabid insurgency for the entirety of the war. Chinese populations throughout the Western Pacific detested Japanese imperialism as well. The Chinese diaspora in Malaya never really cooperated with the Japanese, and Chinese on the mainland were well aware of Japanese cruelty and exploitative practices. Despite this, an unusual economic system developed in occupied China, partly due to the desperation of the nationalist Chinese government, which governed even less effectively than the Japanese, and constantly rounded up able-bodied men en masse as conscripts. To avoid Japanese raiding parties, violently stealing crops, Chinese villagers in the hinterlands began trading with the Japanese garrisons in the population centers and entered into a sort of weird neo-feudal relationship with them. The Japanese now had to fortify their island empire by reinforcing their barriers and make it so painful for the Americans to campaign back to the home islands that they would give up before ever getting close. Surely the Americans would not expend the men and material necessary to campaign through the nearly 7,000 miles of islands and ocean they would need to in order to strike at Sacred Nippon? But that's precisely what the American Joint Chiefs, General Marshall and Admiral King, intended to do. Midway had given the American armed forces and their commanders the impetus they needed to strike back at Japan. Despite the fact that it had been long agreed that Hitler would come first, Japan had to be dealt with. The first decision to be made was along what axis to conduct the campaign. There were really only two options, to push straight through the Central Pacific and take extremely long hops between islands and be susceptible to the Imperial Japanese Navy the whole way, or take the southern route, beginning at the Solomons. 
The first option had the advantage that it cut out most of Japan's defensive network, but it was a very heavy lift for the Navy of 1942. It would require air cover the whole way and fast battleships that could keep up with the carriers and troop ships, which the Navy simply didn't have. The Solomon's route, though longer, would require much shorter hops between islands and allow the Navy to take advantage of land-based aircraft and supply depots, something the direct Central Pacific route completely lacked. The second option prevailed, and for no small effort by the Army. The campaign in the Pacific was always destined to be an affair dominated by the Navy, but inter-service rivalry demanded that the Army get their share if their formations were to be put to use. But the Army was loath to put soldiers under the command of sailors, so they demanded a portion of the Pacific theater. This resulted in the bizarre dissection of the Pacific areas of responsibility. The Navy, under Nimitz, would get three-quarters of the Pacific, pretty much everything north and east of New Guinea. The Army, under MacArthur, would get New Guinea and the Philippines. This dissection, and all the trouble that would come with it, was owed to one man more than anyone else, Douglas MacArthur. The MacArthur line was a long and proud one, having first arrived in the United States from Scotland in 1825. For reasons lost to history, Sarah MacArthur and her son Arthur left behind their distinguished family in Glasgow and began a new life in Massachusetts. Arthur would grow up to be a successful lawyer and would himself grow up to have a son of his own, Arthur Jr., in June of 1845. Arthur Jr. would begin the family's proud heritage of military service in the United States Armed Forces. At 17, Arthur MacArthur volunteered with the 24th Wisconsin Infantry as a second lieutenant beginning a long and valorous military career. He would serve in the Western Theater of the Civil War and quickly rise through the ranks and eventually earn himself a Medal of Honor at the Battle of Chattanooga. Following the war, he briefly left the service but quickly returned to it. Unfortunately, he had to climb the ranks once again, reverting to second lieutenant from colonel. It was during this second stint in the army that Arthur would meet his wife, Mary Pinckney Hardy, and marry her. Together, they would have three sons, Arthur III, Malcolm, and finally Douglas on January 26, 1880. While Douglas was still in his infancy, now Captain MacArthur was transferred to Fort Wingate, New Mexico. This was the Wild West in 1880. Geronimo and his Apaches were still active. In fact, that was the whole reason Fort Wingate was even there. The Old West would be Douglas Nursery, replete with rattlesnakes, gunfighters, and engines. I can only imagine that, to Mrs. MacArthur, this must have been something akin to a prison sentence. But it was a boyhood paradise. The MacArthur boys weren't playing cowboys and Indians. They were living it. They were surrounded by the stark beauty of the high desert. But that early life joy would be dampened by the death of Malcolm in 1883 when he succumbed to measles. This brought Mary to her spiritual nadir, but it strengthened her relationship with her two surviving children, especially during the long weeks she nursed them back to health from diseases ranging from diphtheria to measles to scarlet fever. In 1884, Captain MacArthur was transferred to Fort Sheldon, 300 miles south of Wingate in New Mexico, and somehow even hotter and more remote. They would remain there until transferred again, this time to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Unlike the tiny frontier outposts where Douglas had spent his childhood thus far, Leavenworth was a proper army base with an actual school. No longer would his days be free to roam. He now had to attend classes, which he thoroughly despised, and his grades reflected it. Though he didn't do terribly, he certainly did not excel. Fortunately, he was not there long. The family next moved to Washington, D.C., which wasn't much of an improvement for young Douglas, but in 1893, they would move back to the far west to Fort Sam Houston in Texas. 
Douglas was again in his element, and his father was excited to enroll him in the newly founded West Texas Military Academy when he was 13 years old. Here Douglas found his calling. Maybe it was the martial atmosphere, or maybe it was just the competitive spirit of a 13-year-old boy growing into his manhood, but suddenly, he excelled not only in academics, but also in athletics. Douglas' high school career almost sounds like a bad movie. He was the quarterback of the football team, though this was during the days before the forward pass, class valedictorian, his company first sergeant, the school tennis champion, was on the baseball team, and a member of the school's rifle drill squad. Having finished high school, he knew there was only one place for him to go. West Point. He attempted to enter through appointment, but despite numerous letters of recommendation and the praise of his father, he wasn't able to get it, so he enrolled to take the entrance exam. After months of rigorous study, he took the test and got the highest score of any applicant. In June 1899, he arrived at those hollowed halls overlooking the Hudson River in New York. When he arrived, his father's reputation preceded him. The elder MacArthur had won fame in the invasion of the Philippines, which accompanied the Spanish-American War. After supplanting his superior, Arthur MacArthur was now a three-star lieutenant general and one of the most famous men in America. If you've learned anything about hazing in military schools from this podcast or otherwise, you already know that this would have a negative impact on Cadet MacArthur's first year at the academy. He was hazed mercilessly, but never cracked and never revealed his tormentors. He went on to have a stellar career at the academy, and graduated first in his class, having earned the highest marks of any cadet ever at the school. Having achieved such high marks, he had his pick of career fields, and so chose the Corps of Engineers, then the most prestigious of the branches. His first post was at Leyte in the Philippines in 1903, still reeling from insurrection. Almost immediately after arriving, he came under enemy fire for the first time, and came within inches of being struck dead by a shotgun blast. He would serve in the Far East for several years, spending some of that time on his father's staff touring the Western Pacific. Following his post in the East, he was transferred to Fort Leavenworth for study, and by 1912 had been promoted to captain. By this time, he was serving on the staff of General Leonard Wood, Chief of Staff of the Army, a position he earned by publicly disagreeing with the General. Having earned General Wood's trust, he was personally dispatched to Veracruz in Mexico, under American occupation due to the American punitive campaign during the Mexican Revolution, to serve as the liaison and personal representative of the chief of staff. Here, he would once again put himself in harm's way on a solo expedition to requisition locomotives for the Veracruz occupation. Despite orders to remain within the confines of the American cantonment, he ventured out to acquire these locomotives and was fired upon by Mexican soldiers. He fired back and supposedly brought down a few of his would-be killers. The incident caused an international scandal and divided the army staff, though. Half of the army leadership wanted to give him a medal of honor for heroism and lack of regard for life and limb. The other wanted to admonish him for risking the entire garrison and defying explicit orders. In the end, he received no reward, but no reprimand either. In 1917, on the eve of the First World War, MacArthur would once again come at odds with the general staff and defy them. This time, in regards to the employment of the state militias recently organized into the National Guard in 1916. The dispute was over whether or not to utilize the Guard in the event the United States joined the war in Europe. The overall opinion of the general staff was that only seasoned regular army soldiers should be utilized, and that glorified militiamen were not up to snuff. Now Major MacArthur disagreed emphatically. He argued that these same men had served his father well in the Philippines, and can function every bit as well as regular army soldiers. MacArthur was so confident 
that when rebuffed by his superiors, he went straight to the Secretary of War with his pitch. The Secretary was so impressed, he acted on MacArthur's advice and created the 42nd Rainbow Division from the National Guard units across the United States. MacArthur would serve at its first Chief of Staff, as a full-bird colonel of infantry rather than engineers. Because of his antics, MacArthur was now beginning to earn a reputation for himself as something of a self-aggrandizing prima donna. General Enoch Crowder is often quoted as having said, Arthur MacArthur was the most flamboyantly egoistic man I had ever seen, until I met his son. During the First World War, MacArthur would begin to show that touch for the dramatic that became his calling card two decades later. He wore a characteristically personalized and non-regulation version of the uniform as he strode across the battlefield. He never took cover and always made sure to stay standing regardless of incoming artillery or direct fire. On both of his visits to the front, he was gassed and injured since he refused to wear a gas mask. On both occasions, he refused medical treatment. Of course, this behavior is great for the press, but it raises eyebrows from other soldiers and officers. This behavior isn't necessarily the best example to set for your subordinates, but it sure does get the press to write about what a magnificent son of a bitch you are. The self-promotion, though effective, didn't get him his second star after the armistice, nor did it get the nine men of his brigade their medals of honor, MacArthur being one of them. MacArthur did manage to remain relevant after the war, though, a feat in and of itself. First, he was appointed superintendent of West Point for three years, during which time he reformed the curriculum and probably saved it from abolition by Congress. It was also while at West Point that he met one Louis Brooks, a 26-year-old divorcee. They courted, and the 44-year-old MacArthur married her. The marriage would only last seven years, no doubt owing to the former Miss Brooks' disdain for living in Manila. In 1925, MacArthur was promoted to Major General at the age of 44, quite young to add a second star during peacetime. Five years later, in 1930, President Hoover appointed him Chief of Staff of the Army. He was the youngest man to ever hold the post. It was during his tenure as head of the Army that he almost ended his career when he set soldiers on the bonus marchers in Washington, D.C. Public opinion was squarely with the unemployed Great War veterans, and MacArthur was publicly reamed for leading his men against them. Though the order to evict the marchers was given by Hoover, MacArthur definitely deserved his admonishment for leading their removal. To the day he died, he clung to the conspiracy theory that the bonus marcher was led and infiltrated by communists, which was wholly untrue. MacArthur does at least deserve credit for leading their eviction personally, though. He felt it was his responsibility and that he could not force a subordinate to do it, knowing what an odious task it was. Who knows where MacArthur's career may have gone had he not tarnished his reputation that day in July of 1932. Maybe he would have even been president. As it was, though, his name would never recover in more liberal circles, though conservatives would continue to hail him as a national hero. When FDR was elected in 1932, he kept him on as chief of staff for another two years, after which he accepted the invitation of President Manuel Quezon of the Philippines to organize their defense against Japan. After arriving, he appointed himself Field Marshal of the Philippine Armed Forces and designed for himself an audacious uniform, which only increased his reputation for being self-important. You cannot deny that MacArthur was undoubtedly one of the greatest men in American history, however problematic. Had he died in Manila in 1940, he would be remembered as a giant, but he didn't. It would only add to his legacy in the coming decade. Of course, at our point in the narrative, he's only beginning his fight back to the Philippines. 
MacArthur wouldn't be the first man to retake territory from the Japanese, though. That particular honor would go to Major General Archer Vandegrift of the United States Marine Corps. He had just been named commander of the 1st Marine Division for the invasion of Tulagi, Guadalcanal. When Vandegrift got his orders to invade the unheard-of islands in the Solomon Chain, he not only knew nothing about them, but he only had five weeks to do it, with the force scattered all over the South Pacific, no less. The 7th Marines were in Samoa, the 1st Marines in transit to New Zealand, 5th Marines were with him in Auckland, and artillery was split between transit and Samoa. He not only had to assemble this force, but then organize it, supply it, and embark it, not to mention figure out where the hell he was going. When Vandegrift brought all of these hurdles to the attention of the Joint Chiefs, they granted him a reprieve of one week. The invasion was delayed until August 7th. The reason for their haste was that the Japanese were quickly constructing air facilities on Guadalcanal that would greatly impact American fleet operations in the area. They needed to deny them this piece of key terrain. After capturing Guadalcanal, the Americans would then be able to reach out to strike at the large Japanese air bases on Rabaul in New Britain and Kavieng on New Ireland. Transporting the 19,000 Marines to their objective was Admiral Jack Fletcher, now in command of the carrier Saratoga, Yorktown, and Enterprise, and the battleship North Carolina. He would give General Vandegrift two days to unload his men and supplies. Vandegrift was aghast. This was a massive undertaking. Capturing a well-defended island from enemy hands, he would need air cover and naval gunfire support. Fletcher was unmoved. The Marines had two days. The Marines landed on Guadalcanal without resistance on August 7th, a deceivingly auspicious start to what would become a protracted air, land, and sea battle. On the island of Tulagi, across what would become known as Iron Bottom Bay, the story was different. Here, the Japanese put up stiff resistance on the shore and kept it up as the 1st Marine Raider Battalion pushed their way inland. On the night of August 7th, the Japanese launched their first bonsai charge of the war against Americans. Despite spirited resistance, Tulagi was secured by the night of August 8th. The 10,000 Marines who landed on Guadalcanal the first day arrived to immaculate beaches set against idyllic tropical plants and calm azure waters. The superficial beauty hid the dangers that lurked within. Not just the 2,200 strong Japanese garrison, but the hordes of flies, mosquito clouds, fevers, and fungi of every kind. Luck was still on their side though as they took the airfield, renamed Henderson Field after an aviator who died on Midway on the first night. That night, the three marine regiments on the island dug in. The next day, they continued their advance and consolidated their gains, still having not seen a single Japanese soldier. The Japanese were not just letting the Americans have the island, though. Quite the opposite, in fact. Japanese leadership was making large efforts to expel the Americans from their island bases in the eastern Solomons. At noon, on August 8th, a flight of Cates and Vals descended on the American fleet sitting in Iron Bottom Bay, assisting the Marines getting ashore and establishing themselves. Though the aerial attacks were thoroughly disrupted, they did manage to damage and ultimately destroy two American ships, the destroyer Jarvis and the transport George F. Elliott, the latter being the first ship to go down in Iron Bottom Bay with all of its attendant supplies that it had been waiting to offload. At the end of the day, on August 8th, Fletcher was feeling confident Maybe he could give these marines a couple more days. After all, they had repelled the Japanese air attacks and suffered relatively light casualties. That night, his calculus would change completely. Earlier that day, a force of seven Japanese cruisers had entered the Slot, a 400-mile-long corridor running the length of the Solomon chain, 
beginning at Bougainville and ending at Iron Bottom Bay off Guadalcanal. Though the force had been sighted by Allied coast watchers, the Japanese approach would be guarded by a squall that developed around midnight. By 1.30 in the morning on August 9th, the Japanese were off Savo Island and had snuck right up to the Allied cruisers Chicago and Canberra. After destroying them at almost point-blank range, they turned their guns on the Astoria, Quincy, and Vincennes. After damaging and ultimately destroying four American cruisers, Admiral Mikawa disappeared back up the slot as quickly as he had pounced. The Battle of Savo Island was a devastating defeat for Fletcher. Though the Japanese had destroyed their escorts, they had not even touched the transport still laden with supplies. Unfortunately, the Navy wasn't going to risk sticking around any longer and withdrew from Iron Bottom Bay. The Marines were on their own. <laughs> 